Yes, yes, yes. Have a seat. And again, thank you for being here to worship with us this morning and to be a part of this. As Mia said, we are in our 21 days of prayer as a community. Um, it's something of a, a part of the church calendar that I feel like has, has taken root in many churches, not just in our city, but across the country. People do this, um, and, and it's a, an evangelical kind of liturgical moment. And, and we do it as a part of uh, celebrating the different rhythms and routines and observing these different moments that we find ourselves in as a community. We come back to these things again and again. Um, I love doing it in this season right after Christmas. Our children in their uh, curriculum that I referenced earlier, they're talking about Epiphany right now, uh, the season coming out of the celebration of Christmas. And Epiphany is uh, celebrated, it starts on January 6th, which is when Christmas is over. You Philistines that took your Christmas tree down, like the 26th, you're wrong, okay? It, it ended on January 6th, uh, when that's the day we celebrate that the wise men actually came to baby Jesus and recognized this baby as king um, years later. Remember, we joked about that as well. You're not supposed to have the wise men at the manger until Epiphany. No, okay. So we celebrate this moment. Epiphany is this thing, this, this season where we recognize and acknowledge what it means that Jesus is our king. And so we uh, align our 21 days of prayer with this, uh, this season that we have in the liturgical calendar, meaning this, this preset days of observation and celebration that the church collectively, universal or Catholic, for those of you that oftentimes maybe wonder, why do we say Catholic church? It's universal church, uh, a fancier way, a more poetic way of saying that, that we acknowledge that these are things that we should celebrate, that we should call to mind, and they've been doing it for thousands of years now, and we are participating in this great tradition with them. And we, so we come to 21 days of prayer uh, excited to meet with the Lord and, and to gather before him. And this year, as a community, as it's kind of become uh, the way we do it here, we sort of uh, highlight, if you will, or, or teach on or acknowledge different practices or spiritual disciplines as a way of meeting and communing with the Lord in prayer. But we've talked about fasting. We've talked about um, the way we read scripture. A couple years ago, we did Sabbath, our first uh, January here in this space. And this year, we're going to talk about silence and solitude. Um, this may not be the thing that you think is the most obvious, uh, the, the, the thing that is like, oh yeah, of course, 21 days of prayer, we're going to spend a bunch of time by ourselves in the quiet, right? Like that may not be your first inclination, but I think it's an important one. And, and I think it's a way that uh, you can allow yourself to do something in prayer that oftentimes is missing. We come to prayer so often thinking it's about our words. It's, we come to prayer thinking it's about what we say or what we do. And really the invitation is to come and to sit before Jesus, before God. And so our time together on Sundays will be centered around how God speaks in silence. Our sermons, our texts that we read this morning is God speaking in a whisper in the quiet space. And so what does it mean? I'm going to put this up right at the start uh, just as a way of reference for you. If silence and solitude is totally... Um, foreign to you as a concept or an idea. Here are some really practical ways this week that you can practice silence and solitude. Um, you can do a walk all by yourself. Um, no phone. I would encourage you if you're like, that's not possible for me, uh, go like wake up 15 minutes earlier. Go outside, leave your phone at home, 
if you're a parent and you have to put your kids to bed, like, go of an evening. Bundle up in the dark. It'll make you feel even more isolated, okay? This is one way that you can do this. Leave the phone at home. Keep the AirPods out of the ears. Just go walk in silence. Another way would be if maybe you have a little bit more free time or you arrange this with your spouse or your roommates or whatever it might be, take a Saturday when it's a little bit warmer outside and go walk in the woods. Red Mountain is free if you've been there. Um, it's in just Homewood, Birmingham area. You can go walk the trails there for free. Um, but go walk in the woods by yourself. And if you feel the need to bring your phone for safety and all of that, I totally understand that. Um, but keep it off. Turn off notifications. Put it in your back pocket and just walk quietly. Uh, drive in the car in silence. Some of you just cringe quite possibly. The thought of being in your car alone, quietly, uh, maybe haunts you or terrifies you. Uh, another way I would say to do this would be to run errands. I was thinking about this uh, last month, right before Christmas. I knew this was coming up. And I was at the chiropractor and I was waiting by myself. And I felt this like just sens uh, unsensational urge to just pull out my phone because I was just sitting there. And I was like, well, what else am I supposed to do? I need to be on my phone instead of just like sitting and being, right? Instead of just existing in the moment, uh, I wanted to be connected to something. I wanted to be doing something. So one way to practice silence and solitude in a busy, like we live in an urban environment. Uh, you are not a monk in a monastery where we have made a pact to, for the rest of our lives to exist in silence. That's not for you. Um, but there are small ways that you can engage with this. And so I would encourage you to do it. Uh, go to the grocery store and leave your phone in the car, and then when you're in line, standing there behind the people, and you're wondering why the cash register is taking so long, and you want to pull out your phone, and you want to text someone, or you want to do something, just sit there by yourself in line. There's a way that you can practice silence and solitude around people. There's a way that you can practice, like, calming yourself even when there is noise around you. So let me say this about parents versus singles or uh, maybe young 20-something, early married. Like the, if you're a parent of young kids, you're thinking to yourself, uh, I can't even go to the bathroom or shower by myself. This is my life. I understand it very well, okay? Uh, solitude is something that you can practice because I also know on a day home by myself with my kids for the last 11 days in quarantine, like you can feel really alone with people around you. And there's a way that we can begin to attune our hearts and our minds to embrace that aloneness, that solitude that we may find ourselves in. Also, you can be all by yourself and fight that feeling of aloneness by constantly having the TV on, constantly needing to connect on the phone. Like there is a way where we trick ourselves into thinking. So like this isn't necessarily whether you're a parent or what's capable to you physical around you. Because here's the other thing too. If you go walk in the woods, it's not completely silent. Silence in this, I think for us in our 21st century, is a way of approaching life in a different kind of like mindset. When your kids are making noise, that's okay. You can still be silent, but it's a way of quieting our minds and our hearts before the Lord. Learning to become unhurried in some sense. Louis C.K., who is uh, not someone that you probably expected to hear quoted on a Sunday sermon... Um, for many reasons, and I can't tell you to watch his stand-up uh, in good conscience, but if you do, you got to watch some of them because they're hilarious. Anyways, 
he has this, this interview with Conan O'Brien. I think it was in 2013 before he got canceled by both the right and the left. And he, in this interview, he's talking about why he won't let his kids have a cell phone. And this is what he says. He says, I think the things are toxic, especially for kids. You need to build an ability to just be yourself and not do anything. That's what the phone is taking away from us, is this ability to just sit there. That's being a person. And then in this, in between here, he goes on to like, keep talking about there's this thing, he says, that there's this sadness or this like, pit that exists in all of humanity, like deep down in here that never goes away. And he talks about how like, we don't actually ever learn to embrace that sadness, that aloneness. Now, Louis C.K. is an atheist, and he has different ideas of what that sadness and that aloneness is. He makes a joke about how it being that like, you realize that all the while, as being human, is that there's this nothingness that exists and that none of this matters. Now, you and I here this morning wouldn't agree with that statement. But he goes on, and he says that, you never, with a phone, ever feel completely sad or completely happy. You just feel kind of satisfied with your product and then you die. Now, despite the fact that we think that this comes from something other than what Louis C.K. would uh, chalk it up to be, or that uh, we think that there's a different solution, he and I, to what this problem is, He's saying something, I think, kind of prophetic here of our modern times. And this is what comedians do. In a lot of ways, they are like our modern-day kind of cultural prophets because they can say things in humor that we all know are actually true. And I think what he's getting at with the plight of humanity is this, that we don't know how to be sad and alone. We don't know how to actually be honest about what we're thinking and what we're feeling and what we're processing and it's causing a great harm to our emotional and, I would say, our spiritual health. And so, for 21 days, what we are trying to invite us into as a community so that we can highlight this and hopefully incorporate this into our lives if moving forward as a community that we would learn what it means to be honest about what we're feeling inside, that we would address it for the health of our friendships, that we would become better daughters, that we would become better co-workers, that we would become better spouses if that's the, the life that you live, by being honest with what we're thinking and what we're feeling. Now, here's the thing about silence and solitude, okay? Two years ago, we did Sabbath. And solitude and Sabbath are so intermingled that it's like hard to separate the way we talk about them to some degree. Sabbath is my favorite spiritual discipline. If you've known me for more than six months, you've heard me talk about it. If you've heard me talk about Sabbath, you've seen me get really excited about it. And I love Sabbath because I love good wine and good food and I love delight. Sabbath is a beautiful thing kind of in theory that we're invited into. This pausing of our lives, this giving up of like the hurry and the hustle and taking delight. And it's so important to me because for so much of my life, I didn't believe that God was actually good and wanted good things for me. I mean, in theory, I knew he was good, right? But in practice, I didn't think he actually wanted me to experience his goodness. I had to earn that. I had to kind of strive for that. I always kind of, and I still in this way, my default is just to assume that there's something wrong with me and that I'm the reason to blame, and that I'm at fault for whatever it is. And Sabbath kind of invites me into letting go of that and just being. 
that it's not my doing or my, my, my existing that is what is making me whole and complete, that it's just me being me and that God delights in that. And Sabbath is this beautiful thing. Now, in theory, in practice, Sabbath can become very difficult because connected to Sabbath is this need to be quiet and to be alone. And this is the scary side of the practice. Sabbath two years ago was like, okay, you guys are maybe into it. Practice, yeah, 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 we like this. This is good. Now we're going to talk about the like hard side of this. Because if what Louis C.K. is saying is true, silence and solitude invites us into a confrontation with something that we've long been trying to ignore. And God is calling us into a confrontation with something that we have long been trying to ignore. Henry Nouwen, um, who I'll probably reference a few times, has a lot to say on Sabbath, or I mean on silence and solitude. But he says this, I think, is kind of the most profound of, of juxtaposing against something of like delight and enjoyment. He said, it is this nothingness in solitude that I have to face my own solitude. A nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends my work and my distractions so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I am worth something. The task is to preserve in my solitude, to stay in my cell until all my seductive visitors get tired of pounding on my door and leave me alone. This is the wisdom of the desert, that the confrontation with our own frightening nothingness forces us to surrender ourselves totally and unconditionally to the Lord Jesus Christ. In that same kind of uh, section, he'll go on to say that silence is actually the furnace of our transformation. Solitude is the place where we are actually transformed. The dross is burned away. This isn't exactly the most exciting thing to talk about. This juxtaposes, if you will, 21 days of prayer being much more than just like a good way to start the new year, which is how I oftentimes treat it. When I, I don't know if this, if you're guilty of this, I am very guilty of this, of like treating spiritual disciplines and getting really excited about them. And and really what it is, it's like a glorified, like I'm about to get spiritually swole, okay? Like I'm going to cut the fat, I'm going to count my calories, I'm going to hit a workout routine with David Eden. He's not even in here to get that joke for me, but anyways... Like, and often, I don't mean it to be that, but that's, what, that, that's what, really what I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to flex spiritual muscles. <clears throat> but silence and solitude, like, just doesn't even give us space for that. Because it's about transformation. I'll say this now, and I'll touch on it more at the end, but silence and solitude can't just be mindfulness that's kind of in vogue and cliche right now. It's not just about best practice or finding our true selves, but it's about stripping everything away and standing naked and bare in the presence of the Lord. It's about learning not to hide as they did in Genesis 2, Genesis 3. About not covering ourselves up when the Lord calls us to come into his presence. It is about being fully bare before the Lord. So let's look at this as we walk through our passage. If you've been paying attention, I've sort of been doing this a little bit already, but I'll share a few insights or markers along the way as we kind of talk about 1 Kings 19. 
Uh, I hope that what this does is it allows us to sort of connect our time as a community a little bit more towards Scripture. I'll come back to this idea of silence and solitude about being about union with God, and we'll go to the table. But first, let's look at what Elijah is doing here in 1 Kings 19. A little context for this, the first few verses that we didn't read. Elijah has just destroyed all of the Baals and the, those prophets of Baal, Baal, we can say it lots of different ways, you say it however you want, it doesn't bother me none. And this little lady named Jezebel is not so happy about it. And so she threatens Elijah that she's going to kill him for doing the thing that the Lord asked him to do, doing the thing that he knows is right. And it seems to be a kind of conjecture here tied into this, that the people that had just done the thing that he asked them to do, which was to destroy the idols and tear them down, don't really stand up for him. There's no one defending him. There's no one coming to his rescue saying, no, 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 don't kill him. He did the right thing. It seems that they kind of go, well, all right, we're just going to get out of the way and let this happen. And he has reason to be afraid because Jezebel's killed prophets of the Lord before. And so what he does is what many of you would do and what I would do is he sees the reality of his situation and he does the thing that he should do and he gets out of there. The text says that he fears for his life. Some translations or, or the nuance of that Hebrew is that he sees the peril of his life and he flees to the wilderness. And I think he flees to reckon with the Lord. In some sense, what he's doing here is he's fleeing from his calling, from what the Lord has had him do for so many years. And it's here that he utters the word. It's, we have more words to it, but in Hebrew, it's just enough. He's had enough. He's done. He's burnt out. He's tired. He's exhausted. He cannot live with himself anymore. And he says, actually, here to the Lord, he's honest, he's raw, he's vulnerable, and he says, I would rather be dead. Like, I can't go on doing this. I've had enough, God. And I'm out. And he lays down in the desert to die. And here an angel comes and begins to minister to him. This is really a beautiful thing that starts to happen. Because Elijah's not critiqued here. He's not scolded. He's not told to go back to where he came from. He's not told to pick back up his prophetic mantle that he knows he's supposed to be carrying. Because geographically what has happened here is when it says that he has gone down, he's gone to the southern tip of like the area where he should be called. And then he goes another day's journey into the desert. This is like when Jonah's trying to flee to Tarshish. Other examples that we see all throughout scripture, what the text is telling us is that he has gone geographically away from where he's supposed to be. And the angel does not come and say, Elijah, get your butt back up there. He nourishes him. He gives him food. He tells him to sleep. He tells him to rest. When you're in this place of exhaustion, the Lord is not here to heap more onto you to do. Silence and solitude is not work in that sense. It is the space where the Lord comes and he meets with you. And he nourishes you. And he offers you food. And he offers you drink for your dry and weary soul. It's not condemnation in this moment. It is grace. And as Elijah is nourished, and his space, and his heart, and physically his body is ready to continue, he journeys for 40 days and 40 nights. Now where he is going, dear reader, should ring some bells to you. 40 days and 40 nights into the desert, 
is very symbolic. So he's taking a journey on behalf of the people of Israel. He's going to Mount Horeb, or what would also be called Mount Sinai, so you should have ideas of uh, Moses and Exodus 33 coming to mind here. And he goes for 40 days and 40 nights on a journey that should have taken probably a week or two. So to note here again, this silence and solitude, it is not rushed and it is not hurried. Elijah's not trying to just fix the problem now that he's like got his food, he's kind of rested and restored, and he's ready to jump back in and fix it. No, he's, there's no rush here. And the Lord is not trying to rush him. The Lord is not saying, like, come on, Elijah, get with it, man. You've got to move faster. It's a slow, meandering pace that we see. I think the symbolism of 40 days and 40 nights is connected to the Hebrew people, but I think we're also supposed to see this. We see this thing that's happening where Elijah is just allowed to take his time. I think that's true of silence and solitude. If you come to 21 days of prayer thinking, like, I'm going to fix it right now, we're going to get this over with, we're going to move on, then you've missed it. It's about this intentionality of walking slowly with the Lord to do something, to go somewhere. So this journey, he takes his time, he's honest about where he's been and what he's doing, And he ends up in a cave. And again, you have uh, ideas of Moses here when he finally gets to see the Lord. And and once he's in this cave, he spends the night. And the Lord asks him, he says, what are you doing here? Why are you here, Elijah? And he's honest to some degree. He keeps referencing, and we'll touch on this in just a second as well, this idea that he's the only one left. He's the only prophet. It's not completely true. There's a remnant that remains But he says, I'm done, God. Like, I can't do it. He doesn't hide from what he's feeling. He has the courage to confess it before God Almighty. And so God says, okay, good. I hear you. What I want you to do. I want you to come out of the cave and stand on this ledge. Reveal myself to you again. There's fire that goes flying. And I think I personally, if I just saw flames, you know, like I'm trying to envision and put myself here, I would have been like, yeah, I'm going to go a little bit further back into the cave. Like, this, I don't know if this is for me. But remember, Elijah's just seen fire. First Kings 18, right before this, God reveals himself to the people by con- sending a consuming fire called down from heaven. Elijah has seen God in the consuming fire, but he's not there. Earthquake comes, the roar, the thunder, and Elijah is not spoken to in that moment either. The third step for Elijah and his wearied soul, the whisper, a wind that comes, and God speaks. Here's the thing. If Elijah had heard God in all of this, He knows that the Lord speaks. He's seen him in the natural phenomena. And he's experienced his sovereignty again and again. But it was in this moment that he needed a definitive word from the Lord to and in solitude. Jump ahead. What ends up happening with Elijah? He hears from the word of the Lord. God comes to him, he asks him the question again, he says, why are you here? And Elijah doubles down, same thing. So the Lord says, okay, here's what we're going to do. 
you're going to go and you're going to name your successors. Because remember, he's not the only one. And God's reminding him of that. Elijah, you're not the product and the sum of your work and your output. This is not on your shoulders alone. You are called to live into the life that I've given you. And that's all you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be my disciple and be my child. And in that, there is mission work, no doubt. But he's called to do this thing. He says, so you're going to go name your successors and the time has come for you to, to, to step out of the space. The Lord meets him where he is. I don't think this is a reprimand. I don't think this is discipline. I don't think the successors are named because Elijah was in the space that he was in. I think the Lord was like, no, Elijah's ready. It's time for him to step down. Call that conjecture, if you will, but that's the way I read the text. That's, that's the way the Lord ministered to me through it and in this space that I'm in. You see this moment of the Lord's kindness and his graciousness and his goodness to Elijah. The question of what are you doing here, I do not think is accusatory or condemning. I think it's a genuinely honest approach because the Lord longs to be with his people and he longs to hear from them and know what they are longing for and desiring themselves. I say this because you see it happen in the Gospels. Okay, So you get John, uh, a Gospel. We just read John 1 for our Christmas text, if you were here on December 23rd. And if you keep reading about John the Baptist and the coming of God, there's this moment on, let's see, where are we at? I'll pull it up. We're in John 1 verses, uh, do I have it on the screen? Yeah, yeah, 35 through 39. That's way more helpful than me trying to read through it myself. So the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they started following Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and they saw where he was staying and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Now these disciples go on to be Peter, and I forget who else is it. Somebody. Anyways, it's Peter's one of them. He, this is where he gets named Cephas, or the rock, right? Jesus, showing what God does, he sees these disciples, and he's not like, why are you following me? This is not an accusatory, this is not a big brother. What do you want? Why are you here? This is not the way I uh, approach my children when I'm trying to do the things that I referenced earlier, and they're in my bathroom when I'm doing my things that I do in the morning. They're like, I'm like, why are you here? What do you want? Get out of here. Jesus is like, no, like, what do you want? And he gives it to him. And he tells him to come and to see him. I don't know if these passages are necessarily perfectly paralleled in anyone else's mind, but for me this week as I was reading, like, I just saw this connection of, like, God meeting with his people and looking at them and going, what do you want? Why are you here? What can I do for you? How can I bless you? And the reality of it is, if you're anything like me, oftentimes what we do is we don't know how to answer that question because our life is filled with hurried space. It's filled with noise and action and busyness. And we don't oftentimes actually know how to sit honestly before the Lord and to say what it is that we want or desire, why it is that we're even doing this thing that we're doing. If you are in ministry or in ministry settings, you may ask yourself sometimes, why am I here? Like, we can lose sight of it just by our, like, frenetic pace that life and culture forces us into. If you're teaching, or you're in nursing, or any job that you have that you feel like for some reason that that is, like, who you are and what you're supposed to be doing. If you're parenting, 
or you're married, or you're walking through a really difficult friendship, you may ask yourself, why am I here? Like, what am I doing? But I think the Lord is calling us to ask these questions, and this is what silence and solitude gives space to do, is to ask these kinds of questions and to hear from the Lord. So we need, in this season, I think as a community, what I'm hoping a lot of us can do together is we can ask ourselves this question, that we can lay down the hurried rush, we can kind of bring the noise down, and remember I'm not talking about physical noise, the noise of children, all of that, like that, you can be silent in those moments with your kids crying, the busyness, also remember that you can be filled with noise even when you're alone in a room, okay? There's a way in which we do these things. And I hope that we collectively as a community can find ourselves in a space where we quiet ourselves and we answer these questions honestly before the Lord. And with detail, not vague like, oh, I want to be a good follower of you, Jesus. Oh, I would like, you know, whatever. In these moments, these next few weeks, like allow the Lord to minister to you here. What is it that you want? Why are you here? And be honest with the Lord in these moments. Allow yourself to be exposed, to be transformed. Because, as I said, the, the point is not just that we would sort of become the best version of, of ourselves. This isn't another reminder on your Apple Watch to be mindful in the morning, to clear your headspace. This isn't another Calm app exercise, okay? Even though if you do those things, I think that's great, wonderful, do it. it it's helpful. Breathing exercises are helpful, Moments of reflection at the end of the day are helpful, even if they're not overly spiritualized. I have nothing against those. But what we're being called to in these practices as a community and follower of Jesus is much more, because it is not just so that we are mentally and emotionally healthy, though those are very uh, good side effects, I think you would say. The point is that we would become more and more like Jesus, that there would be union with God. The Eastern Orthodox Church would call this theosis. This idea that uh, we would become so much more like Jesus. A transformative process whose aim is likeness to or union with God. This is the point of these practices. The practices themselves are not just so that you are quiet or just that you have Sabbath or just so that you read scripture and can win the sword drills if those still exist. I don't know, you got your phone now. You don't really have to have the Bible memorized in the same kind of way. Uh, the Egyptian church father of Alexandria, he says this. He says that God was incarnate that we might be made God. This is theosis. And this does not mean that we become little demigods or gods ourselves. The idea of being that Jesus came, was incarnate, we then in response have these moments, these practices, these disciplines, these spaces where we quiet ourselves, that we come to him, and we begin to be transformed into him. So much so that as you're out in the world and that you're uh, living with your roommates or that you're uh, connecting with your spouse, that that line of where you end and where God begins becomes blurred. That you so respond in grace and in mercy and in kindness that you function and live as Jesus would function and live. 
This is the goal. This is the point of doing these kinds of things. This is why we start 21 days of prayer. It's to allow us to get into these spaces, to start our year in this kind of direction and in this kind of way, such that we can participate in doing the ministry of the kingdom. Because it's not just that we become one with God, it's that then we take on the very work of God. And then we participate, as we say again and again here at Mosaic, in seeing the kingdom come in Birmingham as it is in heaven. Silence and solitude never leaves you alone. As you confront the Lord, as you find yourself in those spaces, as you're able to enter into a honest about your sin, as you're able to like, for God and be truthful and begin to to flood over you, you begin to open your hands and let go of the fears that you held on so tightly to, there in that space you become transformed into what God intended you to be in his child. This allows you then to connect with the people around you and it sends you back into community where you connect with people and you do this work with them and they reveal more of God to you and you reveal it to them and it's this symbiotic relationship that happens, right, where you go back and forth between silence and solitude and community, and it ebbs and it flows, and you need both to nourish and enrich your soul. And in so doing, it is not just so mosaic grows in size, or we have a really cool ministry here, I could care less about that. It's so that we could see the kingdom come in Birmingham. It moves us to union, and that union moves us to mission, and it has to be that way. And that's the point and the goal of all of this. And God does it with us slowly and kindly. And he walks with us because he longs to be with us and to be near to us. So each and every Sunday we take communion together. And this is one of the ways that the Lord comes and he meets with us. And so we're going to take it a little bit different. The band can go ahead and come back up. But as we move to the table, uh, you should have your little individual cup. If not, you can go grab one. But since we're talking about silence and solitude, what I'm going to give us a space to do here collectively, and some of you, your ears are going to literally start to ring in a moment. We're going to sit in silence together, holding these elements of the table, holding what represents the bread and the body of Jesus broken for you, holding the cup that represents the blood of the sacrifices poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. We're going to sit in silence, and I, I ask you in this moment to be reflective, to allow the Lord to kind of minister to you in this space and in this place. Ask these questions of yourself and to the Lord, why am I here what do I long for, Lord? And be honest where you need and where you are, and the Lord will hear you and he will meet with you. And we believe in this, that this bread and this cup, that it nourishes us, that it somehow gets inside of us and transforms us into what Jesus longs for us to be, that we step closer into this union with God as we partake in this mystery. We believe it to be more than just a symbol or an act. We believe that the Lord meets us in these moments and he does something to us. So I'm going to invite us to uh, say a confession of sin together. We'll pray the Lord's Prayer and then we're just going to sit in silence. 
And as you kind of sit there, take as the Lord leads, participate in these elements. I'm not going to come up and lead us in that taking. And then after, I don't know, a minute or two, the band will play the last two songs, and I invite you to reflect in those moments. I'll be back in the corner. I would love to pray with you or talk to you about these things and the process with you if that's what you so desire.